following is a Sunday sermon from Hope Presbyterian Church of New Braunfels, a community of people gathered to connect to God, to each other, and to their neighbors. For more information, visit www.hopenb.com. Morning, everyone. It's good to be with you. If you are new, a special welcome to you. We're really happy that you're here. My name is Derek McCollum. I'm one of the pastors here. You heard from Mike Habercorn earlier, and we are grateful that you are with us. Uh, If you'd like to know anything more about our church or different ways to plug in and get involved, please come and find me after the service. I'd love to help. Well, we are continuing in our series that we're calling Journey to the Cross. It's watching Jesus actually travel from Luke chapter 9 to the end of Luke to the mission, to fulfill the mission that He came to fulfill. That is, to die for our sins, to be raised to new life, to give us new life, to ascend to His Father with the promise of His return. And today, we get to look at a passage in Scripture where Jesus maybe starts talking in ways that make us a little uncomfortable. Jesus gets a little agitated with the people around Him. We're in Luke chapter 11. If you've got a Bible, you can open it up toward the end of the chapter, starting in verse 37. I will read for us, and you can follow along either in your own Bible or on the screen above. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked Him to dine with Him, so He went in and He reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that Jesus did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside also make the inside? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God, those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you. For you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without even knowing it. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful to be here this morning, and we're grateful for Your Word, that it does stand. Lord, even these words that that sound harsh out of Jesus' mouth, we pray that You would soften our hearts to hear them well, that You would soften us so that we might be changed. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I did not uh, know this but uh, until recently, but um, the world's dictionaries every year come out with their kind of word of the year at the end of the year. And Merriam-Webster's word of the year for 2023 is authentic. It's the word that they've said captures kind of just the spirit of our age, the ethos of our culture. It's the word that kind of is so important in our culture. Out of the many thousands of words that you could find in a Merriam-Webster's dictionary, authentic is the one that they chose. And I think for good reason, right? We live in a time in which we have artificial intelligence producing all kinds of things, and it's oftentimes even hard to understand what is artificial and what is authentic. We also live in a time in which uh, our social media feeds have become so perfectly curated, we've got it down to such an art 
that we are able to project onto the world exactly what we want them to know. And so authenticity feels really like something that our culture is yearning for. You know, it's not just this year, though. It's been going on for quite some time. In 2007, maybe you've read this book, uh, authors Daniel Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons came out with a book called Unchristian. And it was really taking a poll of 18 to 29-year-olds at the time, the millennial generation, uh, who were not a part of the church to see what they thought of the church. What is it that most of the world actually thinks about Christians? And if you've read this book, you know that it's not really very good news. Most of the things that came out of these surveys were things like Christians are just judgmental. Christians are way too concerned about politics. Christians are basically no fun. But the number one thing that came out in the first chapter that they discuss in their book, what was on top of the list was that Christians are hypocrites. Maybe you've thought that yourself. Maybe you've looked at the church and you've thought, here's what's kept me away is the people in the church don't do what they say they believe. They're hypocrites. Well, if that's you this morning, I want to tell you that you have a lot in common with Jesus. Because Jesus looks at the leaders of the church, he looks at the religious establishment of the day, and he says, here's what I have to say to you. You are hypocrites. So we're just going to dive into what hypocrisy is. What is it? What are the things that kind of drive hypocrisy? And then finally, hopefully we can get some good news into this as well. And what is the way out? And what does it mean for Jesus to free us? from hypocrisy. So first, let's talk about what hypocrisy is. In fact, Jesus shows us what hypocrisy is in verse 39. If you've got a Bible, look at that again. This is what he says. Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. Jesus says hypocrisy is a difference between the inside and the outside. That's the illustration that he gives. You're so concerned with cleansing the outside, but inside it's dirty. The outside's clean, but the inside's dirty. Now, for the Pharisees at the time, uh, this would have been a really important thing for them to make sure everything was cleaned appropriately. And it wasn't just in order that they wouldn't be eating on dirty dishes. I, I don't like eating on dirty dishes. I don't think anybody likes eating on dirty dishes. This wasn't just for cleanliness, this was ritual cleansing. And so they would wash their hands before and after, they'd wash the cups and the dishes before and after, and they had gone to such an extent that there was an, an entire kind of program of washings that had to happen before and after. But what Jesus says is, hey, you're really good at doing the external stuff, you're really good at doing the washings, but in your heart, which I can see, it's full of greed wickedness. They're living a projected life. Have you ever been on a Zoom call with somebody and they've got one of those new backgrounds up, you know, that looks like they're sitting on a beach or in the mountains somewhere? They're pretty good. If the person sits still, it actually looks pretty real, like you're really on a beach or you're really in the mountains. Of course, they're not. They put the background up so you wouldn't see the dirty room that they're sitting in or the fact that they're not wearing pants right? Whatever it is, it's a projection of reality. It's a way of projecting something that I want you to see that's actually disconnected 
from the reality of who I am. I think that's actually a really good description of what hypocrisy is. It's a projected life, a life that is lived projecting something that's different than the reality of what's really there. It's something that's very easy for us to do these days. I already mentioned it, but our technology, this is it's crazy the irony that's come together in our culture. The value of authenticity and the ability to hide all together at the same time, right? We have the technology now, especially through social media, to project an alternate reality to the world that says, I'm going to carefully curate exactly what I want you to think about me. I'm going to perfectly craft the image that I want you to have of me. And at the same time, I'm going to feign transparency. I'm going to fake like, hey, I'm an open book. You know everything. I put it all out there for the world to see of course, is exactly what I want you to see. So we have such an ability now these days to project a reality that may be very different from the true reality of who we are. And I think we see this in this passage in two kind of major ways. You have the reality projected or the fake reality projected to others, and then the projected reality as well to God. Let's look at that first one. What does it mean to project for others? Well, again, if you've got your Bible open, look again at verse 43, or I'll just, you can just listen as I read it. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Jesus looks at the Pharisees and he says, you love it, don't you, when you get to sit in the seat of honor. You love it when you get to walk through the marketplace and people look at you and they say, oh, Rabbi, please, you go ahead. You love it when they greet you with these terms of honor. Why do they love it? Because they get wonderful feelings out of it. It feels good to be loved and accepted by others, doesn't it? It feels good for other people to lift you up. It feels good for the people around you to treat you with honor and respect because it kind of fills that emptiness that's in yourself. I don't know if you've seen the movie uh, Catch Me If You Can, really great movie directed by Steven Spielberg, starring Tom Hanks and Leonardo DiCaprio. And DiCaprio plays actually a a real life, it's based on true events, uh, a man named Frank Abagnale, who was for a long time one of the, the FBI's most wanted men because of his not only counterfeiting schemes, but also his living these duplicitous lives all over. And Abagnale had grown up even as a boy, and especially as a young man, figuring out how to play the role of someone else in order to get the things that he wanted out of life. Some of that was money and stuff, but really most of it was acceptance, honor, care from others. So, for instance, he figures out that, it's the 60s, that airline pilots are really revered. Everybody loves an airline pilot in the 60s. So, he gets a hold of an airline pilot's uniform and a captain's hat, and he starts walking around the airport pretending to be a pilot, and everybody loves him. And women swoon, and men respect him, and he decides, I can even get more stuff out of that. He hitches a ride for free on many, many airline flights and goes to all kinds of beautiful and exotic places pretending to be an airline pilot. And then further in the movie, he decides to up the ante a little bit and decide, you know who's really got probably even more respect than airline pilots are doctors. And so he finds a white lab coat 
puts on the coat, pretends to be a doctor, calls himself doctor, hangs around in the hospital, and everybody gives him love and honor and respect. He's figured out how to have a projected life that gives him the things he wants from others. The author, therapist Ed Welch, some of you have read books by Ed Welch. This is what he says about this projected life. He calls it uh, the fear of man. Listen to what he talks about, how he describes the fear of man. If life is based on our works as seen by others, then we will soon be controlled by their opinions and live in fear of what they think. When we wrongly care about the opinions of others too much, that's the fear of man. We can find it in our tendency to hide something embarrassing, to overthink our appearance, to exaggerate an accomplishment, to drop a name as a way to elevate our reputation, or to get angry when criticized. He's talking about the projected life, isn't he? A life lived in projection to gain approval from others. Now, of course, it's not just you know, Frank Abagnales of the world that lived this life, is it? I mean, we have some low-hanging fruit. We've already talked about social media. We could talk all day about politicians and their, you know, fake lives that they live, right? Somebody like, um, what's the guy's name from New York? I've even forgot it. I'm not even sure his name is real. That's why I forgot it. Um, you know, who made up a complete backstory? Who made up a completely new life? Where he went to college and the sports he played in college, little details even about the particular games he played in in those sports in college and who he played against that his grandmother was a Holocaust survivor, that he had degrees that he never had, and all of it was completely made up. He made up a completely new projected life in order to gain the approval of others so that he might get elected and progress through his political career. And we can talk all about politicians. They really are kind of easy punching bags. But it's helpful for me to look and see who Jesus is talking to in this passage. It's the religious leaders. And I'll tell you, one of the biggest, one of the, one of the places where the projected life is the easiest to take a hold of is standing right here. For pastors, this is one of the hardest things to reject because what we do every week is we stand up here and in some ways we project. We tell you all about who the Lord is. We tell you all about how you should live. We tell you all about the gospel. We live a public life. And very oftentimes, that public life can be used to hide the private life that may be very different. And you've seen this happen multiple times, is that when the projected reality and the real reality begin to stretch further and further apart, at some point, that rubber band breaks, doesn't it? And pastors fall either in being crushed by the weight of things and you see pastoral burnout, and they leave, and they quit, and they're overwhelmed, they can't handle it anymore, or you see pastoral moral failure. It's usually one of those two things, and usually when you see one of those two things, what's happened is that that rubber band of reality and projection has actually stretched so far that it's broken. Now, I hope you'll do me the favor, at least of nodding your head and saying, it's not only pastors who deal with this. We all deal with this projected life. Why? Because we like to be accepted. We want to be loved. We want people to care for us. 
And so oftentimes, we project a false reality in order to make people like us. And you know, as dangerous as that is, it's probably not even the most dangerous one in this passage. I think that Jesus says that as terrible, as hard, as many rocky pathways as it leads to to project a, new, a different reality in front of others, the more dangerous thing Jesus says is to project a reality in front of the Lord. And this is what the Pharisees are doing actually in verse 42. So listen to this one more time. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and you neglect justice and the love of God. Jesus says that the Pharisees are projecting a reality not in order to gain just favor from others, but actually in order to gain favor from God. What is he talking about, excuse me, with the tithing? Well, God really throughout the Old Testament and New talks about tithing as a giving of ourselves from what God has given to us, a tenth of what we have given back to God in order that we might show God that we need Him, in order that we might proclaim to ourselves our dependence on Him. But the Pharisees had taken this about 25 steps further, and they were tithing literally everything in their herb cabinet. Could you imagine pulling out all of your herbs and pulling off a tenth of it and setting it aside to give to the temple? But that's what they were doing, very meticulously ordering their lives so that they would obey all of the rules that God had set down. And I think it's so instructive here, actually, that Jesus says, hey, listen, I'm not actually condemning you for tithing. In fact, Jesus says you should have been doing that in conjunction with the others, because what tithing is supposed to do to our hearts is to show us that we need God so that we might love God more. But what happens in the projected reality, when tithing happens in a hypocrite's heart, the opposite happens. Jesus says, hey, you're doing the tithing part, but look what it's leading to, a neglecting of justice and a neglecting of the love of God. Instead of teaching your heart how to love God more, it's doing just the opposite. It is a life that is lived with a projected reality toward God in order that we might find ourselves better in God's sight and gain His favor. Now, we could go through all kinds of ways that we do this in our own lives. Here's one illustration. Kathy Teuton actually turned me on this week to a short story by Flannery O'Connor called Revelation. Maybe you've read it. It's not an easy read. Like most Flannery O'Connor short stories, it's going to reflect a lot of the really terrible things living in the human heart. But it's a fascinating story about a woman uh, who walks into a doctor's office. The woman's name is Mrs. Turpin. And she comes into the doctor's office. Of course, everybody's in the doctor's office because they're needy, but she doesn't really understand that to begin with. She walks into the doctor's office, and she immediately begins taking account of who all is there, taking account of who all is there and what their place is in society, kind of what their class is, and how she might be better than each one of them. And she has these series of conversations, sometimes with herself, sometimes even out loud, about how she is better than each of these people. And the really insidious piece is that many of the conversations that she has with herself kind of take the form of prayers. She's talking to God saying, Lord, look how I'm better. Look how I'm better than all of these people. I want to read to you this, this little portion 
of this short story revelation. Here's, listen to what Mrs. Turpin says. To help anybody, to help anybody out that needed it was my philosophy of life, or her philosophy of life. She never spared herself when she found somebody in need. Wherever they were black or white or trash or decent, and all that she had to be thankful for, she was the most thankful that this was so. If Jesus had said, you can be high society and you can have all the money that you want and you can be thin and svelte-like, but you can't be a good woman with it, then she would have said, well, then don't make me that then. Make me a good woman. And it don't matter what else for how far, how, how fat or how ugly or how poor. Her heart began to rise. He had not made her a Negro or white trash or ugly. He had made her herself and he had given her a little bit of everything. And if there's one thing that I am, it's grateful. When I think of who I could have been born besides myself and what I got instead, a little bit of everything and a good disposition besides, well, I just feel like shouting, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, thank you, Jesus. Sounds a lot like a conversation that Jesus tells, a story that Jesus tells about a Pharisee, doesn't it? In Luke chapter 18. <laughs> Listen to what he says, Luke chapter 18, verse 11. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, there's our key, and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you this. That man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. When we project a reality before the Lord, what we are proclaiming to ourselves and to others is that we deserve what we get, that we earn God's favor, that we by our actions, by the very nature of who we are, we receive God's favor and His acceptance by our works. Friends, that is the divided religious life, a projected life before God that leads truly to destruction, Jesus says. I think that it's very interesting in this passage, and we're starting to turn the corner now to the good news. I think that it's very interesting in this passage that Jesus is so worked up about this. This is one of those passages in my church growing up um, on, on some of the walls, you know, of, of the nursery. My mother actually had painted these murals, and they were beautiful murals, and I was, you know, proud of them because my mom had painted them. But, you know, they were Jesus sitting down with some sheep and some children, and he had a smile, and everything looked really nice and wonderful. This, this was not the picture that got painted on the nursery walls. Because Jesus is not happy, is he? Jesus is angry in many ways with these Pharisees. 
A friend of mine this week reminded me of something that Tim Keller used to say. He said, you know, we get angry when something that we love in life is in danger. When something that we love in life is being threatened, that's usually what makes us angry. It's true. If you start to look at the ways that you get angry, it's probably because something that you are inappropriately clinging to is being threatened and it's causing anger to stir up in your heart. But Jesus does not inappropriately cling to things, does he? So why is Jesus getting angry? I think it's the same reason. Something that he loved, someone that he loves is being threatened. The people around, the Pharisees themselves, those who might even read afterwards are in danger. They're in danger of living the projected life and they're in danger of having that rubber band finally snap and breaking down. I spent a lot of this week actually really wondering about this word, woe, that Jesus uses. Woe to you, Pharisees. That's not a word that we use all the time, is it? I rarely come up and say, woe to you, Frank Childress. No, we don't talk like that in our lives. So what's going on? What is up with this word, woe? Well, I normally read that and have really for most of my life just read that as a straight condemnation. Jesus is saying, you are now condemned because of your hypocrisy. But the further I dug into that word, that Greek word means something more like alas, something more like warning, something more like, hey, something difficult is happening here. Whoa is Jesus warning people that if they continue to walk down that path, if they continue to pursue hypocrisy, if they continue to walk down the pathway of a projected life, then it's going to lead to something really, really bad. Yes, eventually, eternal condemnation. But even before that, a lot of difficulty, a lot of trial, a lot of hardship. You know, there's a paradigm, I think, that we come to the Bible with so oftentimes that is so broken. This is the way that I used to understand sin and righteousness. I would look and I'd say, okay, sin, that's the stuff that I want to do that's fun that God, because he's mostly grumpy, doesn't let me do. And righteousness is the no fun stuff that he makes me do that I don't want to do. That was kind of my conception of sin and righteousness. But actually, the way that the Bible presents sin and righteousness is exactly the opposite. God, the loving Father, looks at us and He says, here are the things that I know, even though you don't, that I know are going to destroy you. They're called sin. And if you pursue them, then they are going to lead to your destruction and lead to your unhappiness and lead to a very unfruitful and really unhappy life. And you know what? I don't want that to happen because I love you. Instead, here's a beautiful way that will lead to your flourishing. Like a mother or father that takes their little child who's running into the street and brings them back in. It's not because that mother or father is mean and angry. It's not because that mother or father doesn't want their child to never have any fun. It's because that mother or father doesn't want their child to die. That is the loving father that we have. When Jesus looks and he says, woe to you, what he is saying is, please, listen. I love you. I don't want you to die. 
I want you to flourish. You know, Jesus tells the Pharisees, the thing that's missing in your heart is the love of God. If you look at actually the projected life, whether you're living for, uh, whether you're projecting for others or projecting for God, what's the thing that's absent? It's love, isn't it? You don't love the people you're trying to gain their respect of. You're using those people in order to get something you want out of life. You don't love God when you're trying to please Him and appease Him by doing all the stuff and checking all the boxes. You're using God to gain His acceptance. There is no love. Love is completely absent. And what Jesus said when He summarized the law was, here's the whole thing. Love God and love your neighbor. And what Jesus is saying now to these Pharisees is what hypocrisy does is it erases love of neighbor and love of God. There is love that is completely absent. But here's the thing is that not only is love absent from our actions of hypocrisy, love is absent from the things that drives us to hypocrisy, right? Love is absent because we don't understand what it means to be loved. So what's the answer? What's the way out of the projected life? Well, if you've got a Bible, turn it over, flip it over in the New Testament to Romans chapter 5 and listen to these amazing words. Not only is the projected life a refusal to love, but it's also a rejection of love, whether that is doing it because like Frank Abagnale wanting to gain others' approval or doing it like Mrs. Turpin wanting to feel moral superiority. But here's what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5. For while we were still weak... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is the beautiful reality of the gospel. That is the good news that we celebrate, is that Jesus does not accept us based on our performance. He actually loves and dies for us even in the midst of our lack of performance. He does not accept us based on our performance. He saves us in spite of our performance. And that's the good news, friends, that actually frees us from having to project. In just a few moments, we're going to come to the table. We're going to celebrate God's love for us. We're going to celebrate our union with Him. And just like in the words of the great old hymn, Rock of Ages, it says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. There is no projected reality that we bring before the Lord or bring before others, because God, in His infinite love and mercy, has seen us in our need and loved us and saved us. Let's pray that He enable us to live in that reality rather than the projected reality. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would enable us to flee from hypocrisy, flee from the easy ways of projecting a new reality to others that we might gain their approval, that we'd flee from the easy ways of even projecting to you so that we might foolishly try to gain your approval, and that we might live in the beautiful reality that we are broken, more broken than we could ever imagine. But because of what Jesus has done, more loved and cherished and made new than we could ever dream. 
Lord, that is the reality out of which we need to live our lives. Will you enable us by the power of your spirit to do so even today? In Jesus' name, amen.